Monday night, Manchester, England. An audience of mostly teen and preteen girls. Some parents were exiting the Manchester Arena after an Ariana Grande concert. And you probably know by now all that took place. You've read it or heard it in the news. I heard the horrifying news of the suicide attack of the, of the homicide bomber just outside the gate waiting for people to come out. And 22 people were killed and another 59 were uh, wounded. I was coming home from hanging out with my brother on Monday night and and just turned on the radio and there it was. And and the news had already broken probably an hour or two before I I turned the radio on. So by this point, all of a sudden, the analysts were already in full swing. Talking about things, and they they asked this question, and, and the question just really caught me. The question was, how can we safeguard against terror? How can we safeguard against terror and in a world where now terrorism is commonplace? Where bombings like this, we almost expect to see in the news. Not that we want to, but we're getting used to it, which is says something about our world. But they're talking about how to direct the flow of foot traffic at concert venues and large-scale events to most effectively protect large crowds, and so that people would be less vulnerable in case of attack. And I sat there listening to this, driving along, and, you know, I I am certain of one thing. I can tell you with absolute clarity, the only safeguard against terror is the full implementation of biblical morality. And they were going on and on about how we could do this, that, and the other, and how we could develop these programs and these methods of, of dealing with terrorism. And I'm thinking, you're missing the root issue. The root issue is the sin nature of man and and the fact that the world does not want to talk about that. The fact that this world is is reeling in evil. And what the world needs, and, and you know, people might hear me say, what the world needs is biblical morality and respond, well, of course you would say that, Pastor. Of course you'd be starting to talk about the Bible. But we need practical solutions. I'm telling you, when the kingdom comes, it'll be a practical solution. And we will see the implementation of righteousness completely. And at that time, there will not be a question about how do we protect a concert venue from attack. Because righteousness will be implemented. In the meantime, we are called to imitate the king. Until the kingdom comes, our role, our calling as followers of Jesus Christ is to imitate King Jesus to act like King Jesus, to pursue lives that look like Him. I'm so glad you're here tonight. And you know, you may have heard, I don't know, a preacher or a teacher say this before, but I wish more people were here. Not because you're not valuable, you are highly valued, and, I'm, and it's wonderful that, we've, that we have the turnout. But I wish it because more of us need to hear what we're going to talk about. More of us need to understand. Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, this is absolutely applied theology. It's marvelous. It's practical. It is, I mean, almost word by word, verse by verse. We take these things and if we can just begin to implement them or or, or act them out or at least practice them, we're not going to be flawless. We're not going to be perfect. But if we can practice these things, it will not only change us, it will change our world And and when I say our world, I mean the world of my household will change. The world in my workplace may change a bit. 
the world of my, my friends, and then perhaps my city will begin to change, and then my county, and then my state, Washington State, yes, even Washington State could change, if we would implement biblical morality. Not as a system, because systems always fail, but as a practice of the people of Jesus, as a people who are truly implementing the king. This, this is doctrine made directional. It's like biblical Google Maps. Or better, better, it, what it's really like, have you ever heard of Waze? Any of you have the Waze navigation app on your phone? Love it. It's amazing. We used it on our trip all the way down to California. It was taking us, when we hit the California freeways, it was taking me places, and I grew up in Southern California. It was taking me on freeways I had never even been on before to avoid traffic, and we're going around, and Waze says, now, take this van, I'm over on this one, and then back, and we missed all kinds of traffic, and it was the most efficient way to get where we were going, and that's the teachings of Paul here. It's, it's like Waze. It's, it's, well, you can call it Waze for the way. <laughs> for walking this out. And Paul begins in, or continues on in chapter 5, verse 1, by saying, therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Sometimes we as Christians spend so much time thinking about our struggles with sin, we're not even given that a second thought. Or a third or fourth. We're not, we're not even considering the imitation of God because I'm barely hanging on with the mess I've made of my life. And we come to the Lord and we say, Oh, forgive me, Father. And we're confessing and we're, and we're struggling. with I'm just such a sinner. I'm just such a sinner. Instead of saying, Wait a minute. I'm a beloved child. Note that. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So my, my role, my status, my position is not of a flailing kid who's been cast out. No, it's as of a beloved child. This word imitators, be imitators of God, it's mimetes. Sounds like mimic. You know, and that's what it means to mimic in a positive sense, to follow as in following an example, to do as the one in front of you is doing. And Peter said, 1 Peter 1.15, be like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That's the aim, that's the goal. Now our society, our culture has hammered it into us not to be self-righteous. Don't be too Christian, you don't want to be the goody-goody. And we're raised in that. Don't be too good. Be good, but have a little bit of bad in you. And that's cool. No. Be holy, because I am holy. Peter quotes it from Leviticus. Chapter 11, verse 45. You shall be holy, says the Lord, for I am holy. Be imitators of God as beloved children. John wrote in 3 John 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. That's so simple. And yet, what about in the church? What about among believers? Do not imitate what is evil. Okay, so personalize it. Ask yourself, have I imitated evil this week? Have I done in my behavior something that people typically would equate with wrongdoing or evil or sin or darkness? I don't care if it felt cool or looked good. Did I imitate evil? The pattern for those of us who have chosen to step out on the walk of the made worthy is that of imitators of God. And again, note, as beloved children. 
So this isn't heavy-handed religion. This is imitate your father because that's what kids do. That's what little children do. That's, that's one of the real joyful times of being a parent is when you start to notice your, your little son or daughter doing the things that you're doing. Because they just, they so admire you and they're so devoted to you and that all changes when they hit about 12 or 13. But as beloved children, we would say like father, like son. Or ladies, like father, like daughters. Like children who do what our father does because we love him knowing that He first loved us. Like father, like son. You know, we all do take on the characteristics of our parents, like it or not. I told you before, it seems to me the older I get, the more I am like my dad. And that is weird. Because you would think the older you get, the further away you get from it. No, the more those embedded, I don't know, socially learned or whatever, character traits and things that my dad did and how he acted and, and all that, you know, I just I see it emerging in me. I'm like, whoa, that's dad. I hear the way I talk to my my grown children. I'm like, that's my dad. (laughs) It's just the weirdest thing. Sometimes the things that we carry on from our parents, the things that we imitate are good. A lot of the things we imitate are innocuous. We just kind of have traits that we've picked up from them. We didn't know it. Sometimes we own the sins of our father. In fact, we'll carry on the sins of the Father into our generation and we'll pass them on to our kids. But listen, again, believers in Jesus. To be born again is to enter into what I would call, I'm going to give you about five or six things to jot down tonight, so this is the first one. We enter into a whole new paternal paradigm. To be imitators of God is to enter a new paternal paradigm. A father walk, if you will. That we are now to be like our father. To act like our father. To live like our father. Because he has called us his children. John 1.12 Love this verse. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Period. Don't add anything else to it. It's just those who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're his kids. We're His children by His design and by our faith in in His purposes. And now as children of God, we imitate our Father. We are to act like our Father. Now that sounds really cool. It sounds really good until you stop and think, well, wait a minute. How do I imitate God? He is eternal. I'm mortal. He has all wisdom. I'm kind of dumb. How do I imitate God? And Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. We've got the perfect example. So to imitate God is to imitate Jesus. And to imitate Jesus is to imitate God. So I know exactly how I'm supposed to be. I just look at Jesus. I just do what Jesus did. Act like Jesus acted. Try to learn to think like Jesus thought. Pour over Jesus' words. And I am... Practicing the imitation of God. Verse 2, Paul says, Walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I really love the way Paul writes that. The love of the Father expressed in Christ the Son is as powerful a stimulant as the sense of smell. 
And they say of all of our five senses that smell is the strongest stimulant of memory. Smell is the one that brings memory back faster than anything else. And Paul here is recalling something as he speaks of the aroma, this fragrant aroma. Wow, that's something a good Jew would know and be used to. The smell of the temple sacrifice. Maybe this is a poor example, but when I was a kid growing up and going to Disneyland, you know what the smell was that made me instantly think of Disneyland? Cigarette smoke. Because in those days, there were no you know, smoking zones. You could smoke in line, and smoke was everywhere. And that smell, truly, I could be walking in a grocery store, and some smoker would walk, walk by, and i go, Disneyland. It's kind of twisted. But that's what smell does. And Paul is sitting here writing about Jesus and the love of the Father and the Son. And, and when he says he gave himself up for us, and all of a sudden Paul goes, it's like the, it's like the smell of the temple at sacrifice time. Which every Jew would have known. And that smell would have been strong and sweet. 39 times in Torah law, it refers to the soothing aroma of the animal sacrifice on the altar. What comes to mind for you when you think of a, or when you smell barbecue? Because that's kind of what it would have been like. You know, they're sacrificing meat on the altar and those flames are going up and that smell, that aroma would be very strong filling the temple and the people would smell that. The children growing up would smell it and they would, every year as they're coming back, they knew that smell. For me, when I smell barbecue, even today, I'm back in my backyard on Sunday nights in the summertime having pool parties with my friends. Barbecuing up, hot dogs and hamburgers. Every Sunday night we did this through the summers, just hanging out. That smell is vivid for me. And this aromatic memory that Paul is referring to, this fragrant aroma of Jesus, man, this goes way, way back in history. In fact, this goes back pre-temple. It goes back pre-tabernacle. It goes back just barely post-flood. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 tells us, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Genesis 8.21 And the Lord smelled that soothing aroma and the Lord said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. That's good barbecue. And He smells that aroma. And the Bible tells us, literally, that the aroma of these sacrificial offerings actually soothed the wrath of God. He would smell the aroma. And the anger, the righteous wrath that was His to pour out. I mean, even listen to what He said. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. However, I'm not going to destroy the world like this again. Why not? I smell something. A soothing aroma. Why is that aroma so soothing? Well, because sin stinks. And because every ordained offering to the one true God down through history for 2,500 years reminded God of one thing, and that is, second thing to note, the sweet smell of success. That is Calvary's cross. The offering of Jesus on the cross. Every sacrifice 
pointed to that. Every barbecue, if you will, every time the meat was being fried up, burned on the altar, and the smoke was rising up before the Lord, in all of those offerings, every smell was to the Lord a soothing aroma that held off His wrath because the cross was coming, the ultimate sacrifice that would pay for it all, and God would look to the cross and be satisfied. It is the one fragrance in all history that cancels out the smell, the sting of sin and death. The fragrance of the sacrifice. The sweet smell of success. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. We're the scattered sheep fleeing in every direction, but He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. Is anything more symbolic of submission than a sheep being led into the temple courts to be sacrificed? Not knowing, because sheep are dumb, you know. Not really knowing where... He was going, just being led in, to be offered up in smoke and fire on the altar. And Jesus takes on that same imagery of the sheep quietly, silently, willingly being led right to the altar. (laughs) You think about the contrast between the suicide bomber who comes into an area and destroys random innocent lives through his homicidal act. Contrast that with Jesus who comes along and gives not death, but life. And not life to the innocent, but he gives life to the guilty. And he does so absolutely willingly to anyone who will accept his sweet-smelling sacrifice. So that's the picture that Paul paints. Be imitators of God and walk in love. Like God. Look like Jesus. Do you want to be like God? Imitate Jesus. Do you want to be more spiritual? Submit. Subject yourself in the same way that Jesus did. Now hold that thought. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. Paul's now going to go on another tangent. He's really doing that a lot. He begins to talk about something and there's something in the words that he speaks or what he's writing or something in his heart that pings and he has to go off in another direction. So we pause with this thought of subjection and we will come back to it. But now he begins to describe us. He's talking about us in our imitation of God and he's talking about number three, a purified priesthood. And we need to sit on this one for a bit. Verse three. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, This little section, these few verses, there's an interesting connection between all these things that he mentions, all these things that he lists here. And you might just kind of keep your noses in these verses and watch as I call out these words because there's immorality and there's impurity. And there's a connection between those two words and what Paul is describing there and filthiness 
silly talk or foolish talk and coarse jesting. And all of that's connected to the inability or the the personal blockage, if you will, from entering the kingdom because you're engaged in any of these things. So what is the connection between all of these interesting words? Immorality, impurity, filthiness, foolish talk, coarse jesting. All tied together. Why? Well, note this, they tear down for one thing. They all tear down. What do they tear down? Specifically, the gift, ready, of sex. They tear down the gift of sex because all of these words are sexual in nature. All of these words have to do with sexual thing. The talk, and, and, and I can, you know, immorality and impurity, I'll define for you in just a minute, but they are words of sexual immorality. Remember I told you back in Corinthians, anytime you see the word immorality, it's pornea, which is sexual immorality, where we get the word pornography. And same also with the word following it, that's impurity, which I'll explain in a second. But all these other words, even the talking about it, the filthiness, the foolish talk, and the coarse jesting, this is joking and jesting and and filthy talk of a sexual nature. This is sexual humor that, that he's pointing out. And it's all connected. And the reason that it tears down is it tears down, it debases the beauty and the intimacy that God ordained for a marriage. A faithful marriage of a man and a woman. God made this beautiful thing, actually an absolutely vital thing, as we'll see at the end of the chapter. The beauty of marriage and the sexual union between a husband and a wife in that marital context that is such a precious and powerful and wonderful thing. And then what does the sin nature do? It turns it immoral and impure. And then it becomes the subject of joking and, and, and debased talking and thinking and it tears down. Furthermore, these words, this mentality builds up. What do you mean? Immorality and impurity are spiritually accumulative. They build up in a person. They start to clog in a person. Immorality again is pornea. Speaking of a prostituted life. You know, the, the King James translates this a whoremonger. But it's more than just that. It, it's, it's truly it's sexual immorality on the broad sense. But it's a life that is given over to sexual lust. That's immorality. The word impurity is interesting here. It's akatharsia. Something that you tend to start to recognize in looking at Greek words is whenever they stick the word ah before a word, it negates the word. Akatharsia. Does catharsia sound familiar? Catharsis. Our word catharsis comes from catharsia. Acatharsia is uncleanness. But the opposite, catharsia, or where we get our word catharsis, that is a release or a purging or a cleansing. Catharsis or catharsia in the Greek is to cleanse. Acatharsia is to be unclean. And in our thinking, a catharsis then is a purging of internal toxicity or pain or corruption. To have a cathartic experience is to just get all that nasty stuff out. But impurity is acatharsia. It is acatharsis. That is, impurity is retained. Rather than it getting out, it builds up and it fills up and it's accumulative 
And all that junk and that gunk and that garbage of lustful sexual sin, it builds up inside until it comes out and bursts. Sometimes in behavior, because we're just so used to it, we've taken in so much on the silver screen that we begin to act out in our lives in that same way. Or we hear so much of it in our sitcoms and and on our favorite TV shows that it begins to blurt out of us verbally in coarse jesting, silly and foolish talk, filthiness. Paul is dealing with this very true reality. And he's dealing with it through Ephesus and in Asia. And they didn't even have television. But they would hear these things and experience these things and in a pagan culture where idolatry was rampant and the idolatry even that he talks about has to do with temple prostitution and all these things. And so of course the jesting and the joking and the filthy talk, that all went on. And it's all, all almost a cathartic way of dealing with all the garbage that is retained inside. The priests of God are not to be that way. The priests of God are to say no to even even sexual joking, even naming some of these things, Paul says. Don't even name them. Note again the seriousness of the warning in verse 5. This you know with certainty. You all know this, Paul says. No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He's just repeating what he said in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Notice those are all sexually related. Every one of those. Nor he adds thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because the kingdom requires a pure priesthood. Imitators of God? That's what we're called to. Listen, I'm not talking about Mr. Self-Righteous or Mrs. Self-Righteous. I'm not saying that we walk out of here, oh, you know, shining and gleaming and perfect and look at us. I'm saying that's what we are pursuing. We pursue being a pure priesthood. We pursue righteousness and holiness. And and in the process, we, we say no to the things of our society, our culture, that are so pagan. Pursuing being a purified priesthood. Think of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. I know that's right where your mind goes. But in the book of Revelation, it describes 144,000 Jews, mind you, who are sealed for a role during the tribulation. And that role appears to be the preaching of the gospel throughout the world, and it's twice the number of missionaries we have in the world right now who are going to be sent out, Jewish people, marked from each one of the 12 tribes of of Israel. So it's very clear that we're talking about Jews and not Mormons. That are going to be sent out, but they are a consecrated and, and priestly group of Jews. Priestly, but they're from every tribe. You know what? It's kind of God's fulfillment of the promise that all the people of Israel would be a priestly people. So in the tribulation, we're actually going to see 12,000 from each one of the tribes who are in a priestly role, though they're not all Levites. And they're pure. Listen to this, Revelation 14, verse 4. These are the ones, describing the 144,000, who have not been defiled with women. They have kept themselves chaste. 
These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And that being during the tribulation. But guess what? That should describe us. That should describe the Christian today. The one who has not defiled themselves. The one who has kept themselves chaste. The ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Man, wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. Whatever He's up to, that's what I want to be watching. These have been purchased from among men, haven't we? By the blood of Jesus as first fruits to God. Aren't we first fruits to God and to the Lamb? Well, the 144,000 are the kind of the final chaste priests at the end of the times of the Gentiles, at the end of the age, making that final stand for God and for the gospel to save, if at all, those who are in the tribulation and massive numbers will be saved. And partially because these guys will be taken seriously because they are chaste. They do not look like the culture. I want to say this loud and clear. As Christians, we are not called to look like the culture. We should look different. We should be different. And in that uniqueness and even that peculiarity, people look and they say, okay, you are not like anyone I've ever met. Why is that? It's Jesus. It's not me. Because I was like everyone you ever met. But now I'm walking in holiness. I'm I'm being purified as a priest. Why? For the kingdom. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things. And that's again the key. Practice. You will not stumble. For in this same way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, I chose that verse because only two times in the entire New Testament is the kingdom described as the kingdom of Christ. Now, we know it is. And often it's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven sometimes it's referred to. But Peter calls it the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And note this here in verse 5, Paul calls it the kingdom of Christ and God. And my friends, the kingdom is coming. It's coming. It is coming. Probably a whole lot more quickly than we realize. The kingdom is coming. Throughout history, God has been saying this. It's not a new concept. It's not just come up with by you know some nutty theologians here at the end of the age. No, this, this has been going on for all history. Psalm 22, verse 27, the psalm of the cross. At the end of that psalm, David writes, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. That's never happened. It's coming. And it will happen. Isaiah 9-7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So that's one of the things that for me as a young believer really spun me around. It was words like forevermore. I had to recognize that the kingdom of Israel was not a forevermore kingdom. That something happened and there was a pause there, but the Bible promises a kingdom that's forevermore. So how does that work, Lord? Kingdom's coming. The kingdom is coming. 
Jeremiah talked about it. Ezekiel talked about it. Daniel talked about it. Of course, Isaiah did. Zechariah, the prophets, all the way back to Moses. The kingdom was declared. The coming kingdom. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service or sacrifice with reverence and awe. Remember the aroma of Christ? The aroma of sacrifice, that fragrant, sweet smell of success. Now that's us. Following the pattern, imitating Jesus. Revelation 1.6 tells us He has made us to be a kingdom. Priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Kingdom's coming. It's going to be rooted right there in Jerusalem. And I mention that because today is Yom Yerushalayim. Today, 50 years ago, Jerusalem was once again in the hands of the Jewish people. And hadn't been for 1900 years. And was fascinated about the story of the retaking of Jerusalem, the reclamation of Jerusalem, and what Jews now celebrate. It took place in the Six-Day War. Two days into the Six-Day War on June 7th. But Rick, we're still in May. I know because our calendar and their calendar is different. So it gets off a little bit. But it was June 7th, 1967, that Israeli paratroopers landed on the Temple Mount and retook Jerusalem. Marvelous! They, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin got up there on the mount and pulled out a shofar and began to blow the shofar. Tough Israeli soldiers were weeping. And they said, Jerusalem is ours! Jerusalem is ours! What's the big deal? Jerusalem has always been at the heart of the Jewish people for three and a half thousand years. And even when they retook the land, when they declared their independence and, and Israel became a nation again, they didn't have Jerusalem. In fact, from 1948 to 1967, for those 19 years, the Jews were not even allowed access to their own holy city until the city was retaken and Jewish sovereignty was reestablished over the city. And that's never happened before in the history of the world, my friends. What an amazing profound prophetic sign. In fact, the impact of the retaking of Jerusalem and the establishment there of that capital city in Israel, it sent prophetic shockwaves around the world. Christians watching these things were blown away. It was just yet another sign that we are at the end of the age and yet the fight for Jerusalem goes on. Even today, Donald Trump goes to the Western Wall, right? Not with Benjamin Netanyahu. Why not? Because they didn't want it to seem like he was taking sides. And so he went alone. I'm glad he went to the wall. I'm glad that he prayed there. I'm glad that he showed strong support for Israel. And a lot of good things happened that we have yet to fully comprehend in, in Trump's trip to Israel. But what I'm saying here is that Jerusalem still is fought for. It's still, well, Jesus said it will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, Luke 21-24. In the meantime, back to the text. Sorry, a little side note there. But if Paul can do it, so can I. In the meantime, we are being purified as a priesthood. Why? I've said this before. Because we are going to rule and reign with Him. Because the kingdom is coming. Because we are going to have actual and tangible rules. And right now we're being prepared to walk that out. 
And the degree to which we handle this walk now speaks to our preparation for and the degree to which we will serve then. The roles we'll have, I truly believe in the kingdom at that time, has an awful lot to do with what God's working in us and through us right now. As we're being purified as a priesthood, ever watchful for the king and his kingdom come. The kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6. He goes on and says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Notice that. He's just contrasted something. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And we can be sons of disobedience or we can be beloved children of God imitating their father. Those are the two choices. Imitate God as beloved children. Or be a son of disobedience. It's your call. You can decide which will it be. Now some people will say things. Let no one deceive you with empty words. I actually read this this week. It was announced at a graduation ceremony. Follow your inner truth. Follow your inner truth. That was said as if you had one. The other one, live spiritually with no reference whatsoever to Jesus. And both of these were part of Oprah Winfrey's commencement speech at Skidmore College this last month. Mm-hmm. I know, right? Empty words. Empty words. Vague, meaningless, empty spirituality with no substance to it. Nothing to it. Live spiritually. What does that mean? It means to know your inner truth. Well, what does that mean to live spiritually? I still don't understand. I don't get it. It's synonymous. This empty words, these empty words are synonymous with the futility that Paul has already talked about back in chapter 4. Look back there, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And so now Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. That, that phrase, that, that word actually empty there is kenos. And kenos means without purpose, without effect, and without result. In other words, hollow words devoid of truth. And these words, these kinds of things are spoken all the time and there's nothing there. It's nothing but air. Paul said in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. We were praying earlier and praying specifically for our sister Debbie and and Les was praying just about the wisdom of God and, and really approaching and asking for the wisdom of God for the doctors as they would perform surgery on our sister. And it just, it hit me that the wisdom of a doctor is learned. It's experience. It's over time you develop an understanding of how things function and what you're supposed to do in this situation or that scenario. The wisdom of God just is. No one ever taught God who has counseled God. Where did His wisdom come from? He is wisdom. He is not empty words. And purified priests as such, we are invited into, here's number four for you, an incarnational illumination. An incarnational illumination. Now, I'm not getting all Winfrey on you, so 
Hang with me. I don't want anyone to get Oprah exposed. When Jesus came, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. And an incarnational illumination simply means that the only way that truth can actually become inner is for Jesus, who is the truth, to become incarnationally dwelling within you. And then you have an inner truth you can talk about. Guess what? I have an inner truth. (laughs) His name is Jesus. And He is truth. And His truth has set me free. And His truth is my teacher. And His Spirit speaks words of truth to me. And Paul goes on in verse 7 and says, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's what I mean by incarnational illumination. Suddenly now I've come out into the light. I can see clearly. I can think clearly. I discern things. I understand what's going on in this world, whereas before I didn't. It's funny because one of the measures of this, I can listen to Bible teaching by almost anyone now and be enthralled. Whereas before I was illuminated by the Lord, I'd be sitting there going, How long is this guy going to talk about one word in the Greek? I don't care. Bathroom break. You know, I mean, that was my childhood. How long do you have to suffer through this stuff? My friends, we are illuminated by the incarnation of Jesus Himself dwelling within us. It says in verse 9, For the fruit of light, we're walking as children of light, children of light, the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You want to change your culture? Again, be it the culture of your home or the culture of your job or your community or city or state. You want to change your culture. You want to light up the world. You want to bring light into this darkness. There's a key word here and note it. It is partaker. Do not be partakers with them. The question is, of what am I partaking? What am I filling up on? Remember those things we talked about already, those things which tear down even as they build up on the inside. They tear me down morally, they build up, and they accumulate on the inside. We are partakers of whatever we watch, of whatever we read, of the things we hear, of the games we play. Garbage in, garbage out. And that's how it works. When we watch sexual immorality on the silver screen, brothers and sisters, fellow purified priests, we are partakers of that. Well, I'm just watching. I wouldn't ever do that. I didn't even know there was going to be a sex scene in that particular movie. Rated R? Hint, hint. Uh, You know, I was so shocked when we came out of the Rated R movie at the things that we saw. Where do you live? It's like someone all their life, all they've ever seen is G, and they wander in and they see R, and they think that stands for like radical or something, and they miss the whole. Anyway, guess what? You're taking it in. You are partaking in the act. Oh, you're not doing it. But vicarious or not, what did Jesus say? For a man to even look at a woman with lust in his heart is to commit adultery. It's no different. And so when I'm watching it, when I'm reading it in the book, I just turn the page, you know. 
I'm partaking of what I'm reading. I'm ingesting this stuff. I'm filling up on it. One of my favorite of all the Psalms, as far as practicality goes, Psalm 101, where David writes, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I like that. In my house I'm going to do this. Not just when people see me, but when I'm home alone, I'm going to walk in the integrity of my heart. And he says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. And so the question is, of what am I partaking? Let me tell you what Jesus offered by contrast. John chapter 6, verse 48, he said, I am the bread of life. Fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Man, this was wild teaching. This rabbi is not just talking about Moses and the manna. He's saying he is the manna. No one had ever said anything like that before. So verse 52 says, The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Cannibal! And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, (laughs) He doesn't let them off the hook at all. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. What? I mean, He pushes them right up to the edge. And then He says this, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. But he who eats this bread will live forever. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't explain it. I love you, Jesus, for throwing out something so, so, just almost right up to the edge of vile. I mean, it sounds... Eat his flesh. Drink his blood. Did you hear him, Mother? Oy vey, what is this teaching? And they had to go away and go, I don't get it, and I'm not, I don't understand it. And they missed the whole spiritual concept of what Jesus was saying. They just didn't pick it up. What was he saying? He's saying, look, you have a choice. You can partake of the world or you can partake of me. And if you partake of me, live forever. I am perfect food. I am absolute sustenance in this world. Man, partake of Jesus and he will illuminate your life. Partake of Jesus and suddenly things become bright and clear. The world keeps trying to figure it out. Still trying to figure it out. Oprah still has not gotten it. George Harrison wrote a song with the Beatles called The Inner Light. And as the bridge of the song, it, it, it reads... Arrive without traveling, see without seeing, do all without doing. Well, that's just stupid. (laughs) You know, it's that whole just kind of let it all flow, man. Jesus is not a drug trip. 
Jesus is real food and real drink. And the world keeps spouting empty words. But citizens, saints of His kingdom, Jesus said this to you and to me. He said, Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. City set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. And after giving that parabolic example, he then says, So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The light that shines out of me is Jesus in me. His illumination, the incarnational illumination that Paul is talking about here. Christ in you. Remember Colossians uh, 1.27, I think? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, after saying, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, he says in verse 11, do not participate. That's the other key word. Do not partake of with them. Don't be partakers with them. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. How do I do that? If you're walking... In Christ Jesus, if the incarnation of Christ is shining out of you by simply following Jesus, you're going to expose darkness. Just by simply being a purified priest, darkness is going to be exposed right and left. Darkness doesn't like that. But he says, expose them, verse 12, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed to the light or by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Jesus said in Luke 8.17, nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. But as I said, evil hates exposure. Evil does not want to be exposed. And that's why Jesus also said this, John 3.20, Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God, having been made in God, illuminated by God. And and the, the challenge here, the contrast here, is that, yeah, Darkness hates light. But we're called to live as children of light. In a dark world. Do the math. That means the dark world is going to hate you. That means people are going to be uncomfortable around you. And tragically, a lot of times the believer's response has been, well, I don't want to make people uncomfortable. So let's turn the light down a little. We have a dimmer switch on us. Let's just push the dimmer switch down so it's not so bright. It's still there. Oh yeah, I still go to church. But I'm not going to push my faith on you. I'm not going to you know, let my standards uh, brighten your darkness and make you uncomfortable. How is someone going to get saved if they don't get uncomfortable? How are they going to know that they're walking in the dark if there's not light turned on? We desperately need to be light in the darkness and to know the darkness is not going to understand it, is not going to appreciate it, and may hate you for it, but some are going to get saved. And some are going to recognize their darkness. Now, I'm quoting a lot of Jesus here because what Paul is getting at is the incarnation of Christ in you, Christ in me. 
That it's the presence of Jesus in us. The brightness and the clarity and the vision, the discernment and the understanding, it's all from Jesus dwelling in you, dwelling in me. And Paul says, for this reason it says, verse 14, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And some think that was an early hymn, or a chorus from an early praise song in the first century. Man, would that the church be singing that song today. However, if it was a song, it was based on Scripture. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Paul is borrowing right off of that. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's awesome. And it's impossible for you to accomplish in your own good behavior. It is a work of the Spirit of Jesus, the incarnational illumination of Christ Jesus in you, dwelling in you. A paternal paradigm, right? Sweet smell of success, purified priesthood, incarnational illumination, number five. Perhaps the last one, maybe. A saintly sobriety. A saintly sobriety. Look at verse 15. Therefore, Paul says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. You want to be wise and discerning? As opposed to foolish and clueless? James puts it this way. We read this, Paul says, walk in wisdom. Walk as someone who's wise. How do I do that? James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And God was so pleased, so proud of young Solomon, when he had the opportunity to ask God for anything in all the world, and Solomon asked God for one thing, wisdom. Give me wisdom, Lord. And God was like, oh, I'm loving this. I'm going to give you wisdom and all the rest too. Now, He may not give you all the rest too, but I'll tell you what, if you ask God for wisdom, He's going to give you wisdom. If you ask Him for discernment, He will give you discernment. Really? All i got to do is ask? I don't have to study? And No, I mean study, stay in the Word, but yes, all you got to do is ask. And you will understand, and you will see, and you will discern in a way that you wouldn't if you didn't ask. If you lack the wisdom, ask Him for it. And it's not a one-time prayer, by the way, it's something I pray all the time. Because every time I think I'm wise, I start to realize how foolish I am, so I'm right back to the Lord saying, I need more. Pour out more wisdom. Give me more wisdom. If you are uncertain if the direction you're taking is wise, ask Him. If you don't know the relationship is wise, if you have a choice to make and you're not sure which the wise decision is, ask Him. By the way, What is the single difference between the wise and the unwise? The wise person and the unwise. Is it schooling? Is it knowledge? Is it training? How about age? Is it age? I've known some very foolish old men. Is it experience? Listen, the single difference between the wise and the unwise is faith. That's it. 
Because faith says, I'm going to ask God for wisdom and I know He's going to give it to me. How do you know? Because I believe Him. You believe Him for what? Well, I believe Him for His Word. He said ask. So I'm asking. He offered wisdom, so I'm going to Him for it. He said I can have it if I ask for it, so I'm going to do that. Well, that's kind of silly. No, that's faith. And faith separates the wise and the unwise. James says in James 1.6, He must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Faith is the key. And praying in faith. And I'm not, I'm not talking about do you, have you generated enough faith to give the, get the wisdom you're asking for. I'm talking about the difference between the faith of a non-believer and a believer. Because the faith of a non-believer looks like this. I'm going to throw a prayer out to the universe and see what happens. When you throw a prayer out to the universe, it's just going to kind of dissipate into empty words. But if you have faith that the one you're asking, Jesus Christ, will respond to you, you ask in faith, you pray in faith, you trust in Him, and He's going to respond. He always has. He always will. Job understood that. David got it. Solomon. They all three agree. And Solomon wrote this down in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I want wisdom. Ask the Lord. Ask Him in faith because He said, I'm going to give it to you if you ask for it. It's very simply just trusting God to give you the very wisdom that you seek. Verse 16. He adds, Making the most of your time because the days are evil. I love this verse because making the most is exagorazo in the Greek. And what it means is redeem. He says literally, redeem the time for the days are evil. So apply that. Have you ever felt like you've been wasting time? Redeem it. Have you ever felt like you've missed opportunities? Redeem them. Ever felt like you were just spinning your wheels? Redeem the time. How do I redeem the time? This is marvelous. God's economy is completely different than ours. We measure things by days and hours and minutes. God doesn't measure by the clock. He measures by love. And if you want to redeem the time, man, ask Spencer Headley about this. Remember when Spencer first gave his life to Jesus? And he was old. I mean, man, he had to be like in his 50s. (laughs) I remember when he first gave his life to the Lord and the conversation that we had back at that time. I have wasted so much of my life, he said. I have lost so many opportunities and so much time. And you know what Paul would say to that? Redeem the time. How in the world can I, from the age of 50 to, I don't know how long Spencer's going to live, probably a lot longer than me, but from the age of 50 to say 90, how am I going to redeem in 40 years what I messed up in 50 years? That's easy. Redeem the time in Jesus by love. Redemption just blows away the clock. You know, it's loaves and fishes mentality with God. Five loaves and a few fish will feed the 5,000. Redemption is something God loves to do. James again says in James 5.19, My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and he turns one, or one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
That is remarkable. Redemption means that a multitude of sin is covered by one statement of faith. Redeem the time. I've wasted my life. You know what? If you bring the gospel to one person and they're saved, you will have just covered, by the grace of God, a multitude of sin. You've just redeemed the time. I sat there talking with Andrew and Melissa Lefebvre on Monday. And I, I, we, were, we were talking about this before, and Les and I have been talking. He was down there this weekend, and how just to be with them is amazing because of the faith. And those of you who are not aware, Andrew is the young man we've been praying for, 33 years old, and he's got cancer that from a physical perspective is ravaging his body. But from a spiritual perspective, he's the one I was talking about earlier in my prayer, the Holy of Holies. I mean, just amazing. But he was just asking the question. He said, my only question is, and he was totally calm, he said, you know, at 33 years of age, there's so much I still want to do. And we got to start talking about, you know, really, whether a person dies at the age of 5 or 40 or 150 makes no difference. What matters is, did you accept Jesus Christ? That's the only reason you're here. And then if you have, and you're still here, and you're wondering, well, then why am I still here? It's so that someone else can accept Jesus Christ because you told them about Him. That's redeeming the time. That's using the time wisely. For yes, the days themselves are evil. 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Redeem the time. And then in verse 17, he says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And you expect him then to say, and here it is, but he doesn't. Which I just love. He said back in verse 10, look back at this. He said we ought to be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay, what is it? Well, then he goes on to say not things not to do, but he doesn't tell us what is pleasing to the Lord. Why not? Because that's what we're supposed to be about. Huh? We're supposed to be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You understand what I'm saying? We are supposed to be seeking to understand what the will of the Lord is. And God doesn't just give it to you in a five-point paradigm. Here you go, bam, 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 bam. Just get that and you're good to go. No, He says, no, I want you to understand me. I want you to know my will. Well, how can I know your will? By walking with me. By by remaining in my word? Tell me your will, Lord! Well, that's what we're doing right now, isn't it? We're seeking to understand the will of God through study and through prayer. And Jesus said, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. That's how you understand the will of the Lord. It's not a single answer. Be careful if you ever ask someone, what's God's will for my life? And they have the answer. God's will for your life is that you spend your life understanding God's will. I'm pursuing Him in relationship with Him and I want to know day in and day out what's your will right now, Lord. I want to understand Him. I want to find out what pleases Him instead of pursuing what pleases me and that's what I spend way too much time doing. It's not what pleases me. What pleases Him? I know I'm preaching to the choir, but do you come to church wondering how you're going to be filled up? Or do you come seeking how you can serve a brother or sister in Christ? Do you show up on Sunday morning thinking, boy, I hope she chooses those songs that I like this morning? Or do you come seeking to please God by your booming voice completely out of tune, but man, you're making a joyful noise. 
I'm here to please Him. I am not here to be pleased. What's remarkable is the more I please God, the more pleased I find myself. Verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And this is a parallel passage to what God sent to, or what Paul sent to Colossae. God did through Paul. Parallel passage. Listen to the passage in Colossae. You all read along in here in Ephesians, starting in, in about verse 19. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So tonight I'm not going to talk about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because we talked about what each one of those were. And how that worked and what that looked like when we were in Colossians. But note the difference, and this is absolutely instructional for us. <laughs> to Colossae, Paul says, let the word of Christ, the Logos ho Christos, dwell in you richly. But here, to and through Ephesus, he says, he says, do not get drunk with wine, that's dissipation, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. To Colossae, the Logos o Christos. Letting the Word of Christ dwell in you, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Word of Christ, Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Word of Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the point? The point is this, you cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit unless you have the indwelling Logos o Christos. Can't be filled with the Holy Spirit unless you have the indwelling Word of Christ. And you're not going to have the indwelling Word of Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a package deal. The Word of Christ and the Spirit of the Lord. And Jesus said in John 14.23, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My Word. That would be the Logos. The Logos of Christ. And my Father will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. And that's the Spirit of God, which is also the Spirit of Christ, Spirit of Jesus, same Spirit. And He's very clear, you need to hear my Word. You need my Word richly dwelling within you. You want to be Spirit-filled? Man, get Word-filled. And if you are Spirit-filled and you want the truth and the wisdom of God continue to fill up on the Word of God. We've got to have both together, hand in hand, working in concert. The Word of Christ invites the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God brings the Word of Christ, and they work together. And note this, before you pop the next cork, or pour the next lager, pay careful attention to what Paul says about drunkenness. Look at verse 18 again. Do not get drunk with wine. At least you said get drunk, so I can still drink wine. Pay attention. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now I've covered this before, I think actually several times. But dissipation is the Greek word asotia that means excess or abandon. Don't don't take wine in excess. Don't, Don't get drunk with wine because it's just excess, is what he's saying. But this is saintly sobriety here. Both wine and the Holy Spirit can comfort and soothe. 
Yeah, I, I said it. The end of a day, a glass of wine can be a warming, soothing, comforting thing. And so can the Holy Spirit of the living God. But only one does not dissipate. Only one does not evaporate. Only one is there with you when you wake up in the morning, still comforting you, still bringing new mercies every day. And only one is going to fill you up and awaken you with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And it's not the glass of wine. And you can choose, you can decide, because again, he's talking about drunkenness. But you can decide, do I want to be filled with the warmth of a good Merlot? Or do I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, I get filled with the Holy Spirit at church, but when I'm at home in the evening, really? Glass of wine or pray a prayer? I'm going to have... No. How about the outpouring of the Spirit of God? Because His Spirit will fill you and comfort you, speak wisdom to you, remind you of the things of Jesus. He will illuminate Jesus in your life even more. You will fall asleep in His comforting arms and you wake up the next morning and He's still there. Whereas the wine has already dissipated. That's the wine is going to do is maybe leave you with a little headache. Not the Spirit of God. Your choice. He awakens us. Every day, I love Psalm 108. Awake, harp, and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will sing. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. And I will sing praises to you among the saints. And that's what happens when we're filling up on the Spirit of God rather than on the spirits of man. Verse 21, we'll finish here. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And now Paul has just come back around. Remember, he started off with the subjection of Jesus as a a fragrant aroma. And I gave you that picture, Isaiah 53, of the lamb that is led willingly to the slaughter. And nobody ever subjected themselves like Jesus subjected himself. And so now Paul comes back to the thought, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Subject. This is the only time we see the phrase the fear of Christ in the entire Bible. It's always the fear of God. And the King James Version translates it the fear of God, but it's the fear of Christ. And it is diametrically opposed to the fear of terrorism and hatred and evil in this world. It's a completely different thing. My daughter, Anna Marie, heard about the terror attack in Manchester, and she told me today, Dad, I don't want to go to any more concerts. You know, that kind of mentality, we're all going to have agoraphobia and stay indoors the rest of our lives. The fear of Christ. John says there's no fear in love, 1 John 4.18, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. But understand this, get this, what the reverent fear of Christ does. And yes, perfect love casts out fear, but this is a different kind of fear. This is a deep Awesome, abiding, wonderful. Talking about it today, that we will fall on our knees. We will be flat on our faces when we finally see Him. He will be so awesome. That's the fear we're talking about. And my friends, what the fear of Christ does in us and through us as His followers is it creates, and this is the last thing I'll give you, an awesome arrangement. An awesome arrangement. A willing subjection among His servants. The reason I use the word arrangement is the word subject, where Paul says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ is hupotasso in the Greek, and it means to arrange yourself beneath. It's a completely different arrangement than the world would have for you. The world would say, arrange your life in such a way that you're on top. 
We are to arrange ourselves to be in the place of servant. And that means with one another. We arrange ourselves such that we put everyone else above us. We subordinate. We obey. We yield. F.F. Bruce says, Out of reverence for their Lord, who set such a precedent, His followers should place themselves at one another's disposal. Even when others are encouraged on this account to take advantage of them. Bruce is right. It doesn't matter what people do with our arrangement of subjection. doesn't matter. I can subject my someone to, myself to someone and they can completely take advantage of me. That's fine. Okay. Because I am subject to Jesus Christ who subjected Himself to the slaughter for me and for you. And this leads now into the treacherous waters of marriage. And we're going to save that for Sunday morning. It all comes back to this one thing. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. It doesn't matter what your position is. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you are to put yourself into subjection. Now, Father, we pray for the continuing work of Your Spirit in our lives. We've actually covered a lot of ground tonight, Lord, and there are so many practical things and practical encouragements and, and, and words of wisdom here for simply walking out day by day as followers of Jesus. But the whole thing does come back to this issue of subjection. And we are willing to confess and to accept that we are, Lord Jesus, your bond slaves. We are in subjection to you. And therefore, Lord, you're calling us to be in subjection to each other. And I pray of all the things we've studied tonight that this is the one that you will teach us how to do. In Jesus' name, amen.